following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you, church, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. The Apostle Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want to begin by reading in your hearing the life-imparting, faith-sustaining, mind-renewing words of the true and living God. 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Grace Community Church, these are the words of the true and living God. Thanks be to God. Second Peter chapter 2 comes to us, as it did to those in Peter's day, as an ominous warning. It's a clarion call to the church of Jesus Christ to wake up, look around, search within, and to be on guard against false teachers. If 2 Peter, along with its sister letter Jude, is among the least popular letters in the church today, then it's safe to say that 2 Peter chapter 2 is one of the least popular chapters in the church today. That's mainly because as the world continues to push its hypocritical virtues of acceptance and tolerance of everyone and everything except for those who disagree with them, the church, out of fear of being excluded and ostracized by an increasingly depraved culture, and out of fear of decreasing in numbers and becoming unpopular in their communities, the church ends up adopting the world's virtues of acceptance and tolerance, and in the name of love, fails to stand up and stand against false teaching and false teachers. In fact, things have degenerated so much that many self-professing Christians aren't even aware that false teaching and false teachers actually exist in the visible church today. When it comes to those who the church allows into her pulpits and behind her microphones, thousands have come to value sincerity over substance, glibness over godliness, passion over precision, theatrics over theology, and smooth dialect over sound doctrine. And yet, for 2,000 years, the word of God has stood firm and entirely unmoved and unaffected by the winds and waves that continue to beat against it from the world. And though, like a home security system, many within the visible church seek to drown out its blaring siren, its small, red, Flashing light continues to flash because imposters have crept into God's house unnoticed. One of the reasons why chapters 
like this are strange and unpopular and often avoided in the church today is because of the discomfort that it causes regarding the punishment that's reserved for false teachers. Many believe it's too severe, too harsh, too drastic, too extreme. I mean, just listen to how Peter describes the judgment of false teachers in this chapter alone. Verse 1, they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 9, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the judgment of the great day. Verse 12, they are born to be caught and destroyed. They will be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 14, accursed children. Verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Verse 20, the last state of theirs has become worse for them than the first. And verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Many within the visible church today hear that kind of language and conclude that the punishment exceeds the crime. But in God's eyes, the punishment suits the crime because he hates being misrepresented. He hates truth being distorted. He hates when people intentionally lead others astray. He hates when people claim to speak on his behalf for the salvation of souls, when in fact they speak on Satan's behalf for the damnation of souls. It's not surprising that many within the visible church today feel this way about chapters like this, because when people no longer appreciate and value the truth and end up turning away, as Paul says, from the truth, it's not hard to see why when it comes to the severe punishment promised to false teachers Many believe that the punishment exceeds the crime, when in fact the punishment suits the crime. People feel this way when they no longer value what God values. And if you fail to value what God values, namely truth, then yes, chapters like this will make no sense to you and possibly make you uncomfortable. No matter where you're at in your Christian journey, you never reach a point where you don't need to be warned about false teaching and false teachers. If you notice and remember chapter 1, verse 12, the people to whom Peter was writing knew the truth and were established in the truth. He says, you know the truth and you're established, anchored, fastened upon the truth. And yet... The Spirit of God, through Peter, still saw it fit to warn them. What Peter does in verses 1 to 3 is he gives us a basic portrait of false teachers. To use the illustration of one preacher, in verses 1 to 3, he draws the false teachers. And then in verses 4 to 22, he fills that drawing in with color. He gives us in verses 1 to 3 the who, what, when, where, and why of false teachers, and then proceeds in verses 4 through 22 to describe them in greater detail. But in verses 1 to 3 alone, Peter tells us that their arrival is expected, their infiltration is certain, their agenda is destructive, their denial is blasphemous, their destruction is is deserved. Their success is heartbreaking. Their damage is far-reaching. Their motive is selfish. Their arsenal is deception. And he tells us that their condemnation is looming. All of that in these three verses. Now remember, the overall purpose of Peter in writing this letter when you think of 2 Peter, think of three D words. Devotion, diligence, and discernment. He's exhorting the church to be devoted to the scriptures so that they can exercise diligence in pursuing holiness and discernment 
in avoiding heretics. As we move into chapter 2, the chapter can be divided into four sections. In verses 1 to 3, Peter describes the infiltrating influence of false teachers. In verse 4 through 10a, if you will, he describes their impending judgment. From 10b all the way through verse 16, he describes their iniquitous conduct. And in verses 17 through 22, he describes their injurious impact. Today, I want to simply introduce you to these false teachers. I want you to meet these false teachers. And by way of introduction, I want to call your attention to three particulars. Number one, their inevitable presence. Number two, their insidious agenda. And number three, their ironic denial. And so let's begin by considering first and foremost what Peter seems to describe as their inevitable presence. Notice the first two clauses in chapter one, verse, or chapter two, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter doesn't throw this out there as a possibility, as if to say this might happen someday, or in the event that this happens, he speaks with certainty in the future tense here. There will be false teachers among you. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's unpreventable. It's bound to happen. From now until the end of the age, the presence of false teachers in and among the church is inevitable. But it's not surprising based on the presence of false prophets in the Old Testament. Look at that verse again. But there were also false prophets among the people. Speaking of the Old Testament, remember how chapter one ended because there weren't any and shouldn't be any chapter and verse divisions in this letter. Chapter one ended with Peter calling the church to pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy ever came by the prophet's own interpretation, ever, not once. But all prophecy finds its origin in men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's point is that the church has as a lamp shining in a dark place the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, and she can trust those scriptures because although written by men, they come to us ultimately from God. God had his men speaking his truth to his people, and the connection to chapter 2 and verse 1 is that Satan also had his men. False prophets also arose among the people. God appointed his prophets and Satan appointed his prophets. God introduced Israel to false prophets way back in Deuteronomy 13, if you want to turn there with me this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Their presence in the Old Testament was inevitable. And in the New Testament, the presence of false teachers is also inevitable. Listen to the word of God. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You see, many can, are today content that if a person says something and it comes to pass, it's an automatic. We follow what they say. Not so. He says, even if what he tells you comes to pass and he calls you to worship anyone other than the true and living God, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Continuing in the middle of verse three, for the Lord, your God is testing you 
to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. There he introduces us to false prophets. And then skipping ahead in chapter 18, God promises there to raise up another prophet like Moses, which we know is ultimately a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Acts 3.22 confirms that. God also says there in that passage, verse 20 of Deuteronomy 18, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. God takes false prophets and false teachers very seriously. In Israel, the Old Testament is a sad account of false prophet after false prophet after false prophet arising and leading many astray. But I want to, con- I want to call your attention to one particular instance because I think it illustrates the point clearly. In 1 Kings 22... 1 Kings 22, the situation is this. Israel had wanted Judah to join them in battle against the Syrians. But first, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, said, before we do this, basically, inquire first for the word of the Lord. And so the king of Israel gathered 400 prophets and said to them, shall I go? battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain and all of them with one voice said go up for the Lord will give it into your hand but Jehoshaphat apparently still leery about the whole thing asks is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire is there anyone else here the king of Israel says There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And so they summon Micaiah. Meanwhile, the 400 prophets are still telling these kings that God will give them the victory over the Syrians. And as Micaiah is coming, a messenger is sent to him. And the messenger essentially tells him, all the other prophets are in one accord telling the king what he wants to hear. Follow suit. Let your message be like theirs and speak favorable things to the king. But Micaiah's famous reply, and it's the reason we named our second son Micaiah, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And so when the king asked Micaiah what they should do, there must have been something about his face or his delivery or something that was just dripping with sarcasm or something because after Micaiah said, go up and triumph, the Lord will give Ramoth Gilead into your hand. The king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And it was then that Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain." as sheep that have no shepherd. In other words, you want me to give you a good word? I can't. Because when I see you going up against the Syrians, I saw you all scattered like sheep on the mountains. Destruction lies ahead of you. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And in the end, the king ignored Micaiah's word and ended up listening to false prophets and lost the battle and lost his life. Why? Because false prophets only prophesy good things. They only prophesy smooth things. They only prophesy pleasant things. They only prophesy ear-tickling things. 
Listen to Jeremiah 5. God says an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Amazing passage. God says to the people in Jeremiah's day, the false prophets, they're prophesying falsely. The priests are ruling at their own direction. And you, my people, love to have it so. Why do people love false prophets? Because they always tell them what they want to hear. They always tickle their ears. They always make them feel better about themselves and their sin. That's what false prophets do. They never lead you to the truth. They never lead you to Yahweh. They never lead you to faith and repentance and uh, toward God or uh, faith in Jesus Christ. Never. Any of that. Going on, Jeremiah 6.13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's what false prophets do is they tell you that there's peace between you and God when there is no peace between you and God. Continue on on in uh, Jeremiah 23, a massive chapter on false prophets, picking it up in verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. That's another feature of a false prophet. They don't strengthen the people of God. They strengthen God's enemies. They make them feel more justified in their sin so that no one turns from his evil. In other words, there's no repentance as a result of their preaching. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. You see, it's not just contained in the prophet. Evil spreads in the land when there are false prophets preaching to the people. Ungodliness abounds. Iniquity spreads because there's no repentance. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. There's another feature of a characteristic of a false prophet. He gives you or she gives you vain hopes, vain, empty expectations. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth. Of Yahweh. Going a little bit further in verse 25, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell, no, that they tell one another? even as their fathers forget my name for Baal. It goes beyond Isaiah. It goes beyond Jeremiah. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Chapter 13, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. Another characteristic of false prophets. They reject the authority of God. And they've built an entire ministry upon their own spirit, following their own authority. And he says, and they've seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. That's what happens as a result of false prophecies going out. Is it in the people they're taught these things and they're expecting God to do what the false prophets saying. And God's perspective is, I did not send them. 
Therefore, you can't expect what the prophet is saying for me to do that, for me to come through. It's false. It's vain. It's his own authority. And he says in verse seven, have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? So you see this portrait of false prophets in the Old Testament. They look to their own authority. They turn the people's hearts away from Yahweh. They speak in such a way that gives people a false hope and a false security so that no one turns from his iniquity. That's characteristic of a false prophet, and it's characteristic of a false teacher in the New Testament. He says, false teachers will be among you. Now, many believe that the reason Peter switches the language from there will be false prophets, there there were false prophets back then, and there will be false teachers among you, prophet to teacher is one that these teachers weren't necessarily claiming direct revelation from God as a prophet, but they were simply teaching heresy. And that very well could be the case. There will be false teachers among you. He uses the future tense there. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's certain. It's fixed. It's faded. It's going to happen. And they, know, they knew this was going to happen because they were present there on the Sermon on the Mount. Peter and the rest of the apostles. Matthew 7, 15, beware, Jesus says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous, ferocious wolves. You will recognize them, he doesn't say by their teaching, but by their fruits, how they live, how they act how they conduct themselves. And that's why in verses 4 through 22 of 2 Peter 2, he goes on to describe their fruits. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets, Jesus says, will arise and lead many astray. All the way until the end of the age, their presence is inevitable. Paul the Apostle, when he was departing The Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 told them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, same language as Peter, among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul knew it was inevitable. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The only way to counter false teaching and false teachers is the word of his grace. The word of his grace. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul referred to these false apostles. He says they are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul understood that the punishment doesn't exceed the crime. The punishment suits the crime of a false teacher. Jude 4, the sister letter to 2 Peter. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So yes, Peter is using the future tense, but if you Continue on into 4 and 5 and verse 6 and 7. As you make your way through 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter transitions from the future tense to the present tense. He says, they're already here. They're among your love feasts. They are blots and blemishes among you. They are here now. They're here now. But he uses the future tense to show their, the certainty of their arrival Peter makes it clear they're here now. It shouldn't surprise us that 
the sphere in which false teachers work is the church. We might expect false teachers to happen and take place and manifest themselves out there, but Satan's too clever for that. He takes advantage of gullible people. He takes advantage of people who have itching ears that are never satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ. He takes advantage of that. Where people are deficient in their understanding of their sweet position in grace before God, perfectly justified with an everlasting righteousness before the throne of God, Satan comes in and takes advantage of those types of believers seeking to lead them astray, seeking to give them something other than Christ. It's classic devil. It shouldn't surprise us that the sphere in which false teachers work is the church. So we ought to be on guard. Sin never comes to you as sin. The devil never comes to you as the devil. And false teachers will never come to you as a false teacher. Next, he calls our attention to their insidious agenda. He says their presence is inevitable, but their agenda is insidious. Notice the third clause in verse 1. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's their agenda. They work in a subtle manner. They work covertly. They're secret about their agenda, secretive about their agenda. They will, there's the certainty, secretly bring in, introduce, unleash destructive heresies. It's like wildfire. It spreads quick. And it always results in destruction. It's destructive. The teaching is destructive. And the word for heresy here, it has nothing to do with teaching per se. It refers to a sect, like a religious sect or a party, the Pharisees party or the, the, uh, a religious party. They will secretly introduce destructive sects, parties, groups, denominations, if you will. And I think the reason our translators introduce it or translate it as heresy is because that's how you get to a destructive group is by false teaching, false doctrine, heresy. And so we can see why the translators described it this way as heresy. It's teaching that damns souls. It's teaching that to mirror the Old Testament, false prophets settles in the sinner, finds its way into the sinner's mind and heart so that the sinner sees no reason to turn from his or her sin. It's preaching peace and peace when there is no peace, God says. The only way you can have peace is by being justified by faith in Christ, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way of peace. This kind of teaching keeps souls enslaved. It keeps souls blinded. It keeps people separated from God. It's it's a type of teaching, a type of doctrine, a type of thinking communicated from the platform, through the microphone, through the pulpits that causes people to keep their eyes and to look at themselves and not to God. To think that life exists for Their dreams, the great things God has for them, it's subtle. They mention God, but you would think from hearing them that the Bible is all about God doing great things in your life. That's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is that God is glorifying himself through the salvation of his people as he promised of old, from old. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, it it causes us to ask the question, where is the line from sound doctrine to false doctrine? Where is that line? I want to give you seven areas in which you can measure um, this line. 
or identify this line. First of all, when it comes to revelation, in other, in other words, when it comes to how God has revealed himself generally in creation, but also in the scriptures, how has he revealed himself? False teaching always attacks in one way or another God's revelation. The Bible is authoritative. False teacher says, no, you're the authority. It attacks the authority of scripture. It attacks the sufficiency of scripture. The assault is on scripture, on revelation, its authority, its sufficiency, its clarity. False teaching says, scriptures are too difficult for the modern Christian, the everyday Christian to understand. You need my insights. You need my discipleship. You need my revelation to be added to your understanding of the scriptures. Friends, the scriptures are self-authenticating. The scriptures, as Spurgeon said, do not need to necessarily be defended. The scripture is like a lion. You let it out of its cage and it will do its own defending. Secondly, false teaching has to do with attacks on the character of God. The essence of God, the being of God. God's triunity as Father and Son and Spirit. It attacks who God is as the Father, or who God is as the Son, or who God is as the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, a false teacher will often be wrong when it comes to the nature of man. The nature of man. No, the man is not totally depraved. He's just... He just has a little bit of problems. No, friends, the Bible teaches that we are dignified, a dignified creature, and that we are created in the image of God. We are dependent. He upholds us by the word of his power. He gives to us life and breath and everything. We are dignified. We are dependent. But sadly, because of Adam, we are depraved. We are not just sick. We are dead in our sins. And false teaching comes along and attacks those different positions. Fourthly, false teaching always wants to redefine or lighten our views of sin. Of sin. By calling sin anything other than sin. How many times in gospel presentations do you hear today that your problem is that you're broken? You're hurting. Because you're in a broken world. Your dreams have been shattered. Sin has made it so that you're just not satisfied. No, friends. We're not just broken. We are objectively guilty before a holy, holy, holy God. And there's only one remedy for that guilt. And it's in the bloody cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and turning to him. False teaching always attacks sin. Not to make it more sinful, but to lighten its load, to dull its edge. Number five, false teaching, and we see this primarily in the New Testament epistles, is always an attack on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. False teaching takes away from his deity or takes away his humanity. It's an attack on his deity as the eternal son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the father. Or it attacks his work. You need to add to his work. Yes, he died for sins. Yes, but that's how false teaching works is the but. The but that comes after the sufficiency of his work is a favorite term of false teachers. And it's subtle. It's very secret. Again, they secretly introduce destructive, damning heresies. Number six, false teaching is always an attack on the nature and sweetness of biblical salvation. It attacks salvation. It either says you're saved by works or you're saved by 95% the gift of God through faith. But 5% has to be your own doing. 
It's an attack on salvation, what it is. It's an attack on how God delivers and what God delivers from. And lastly, false teaching always attacks eternity. That is, what happens at the judgment? What happens after we stand before God? False teachers rarely, rarely preach on eternity. If they do, it's always heaven because they promise peace, peace, but there is no peace for unrepentant sinners and a holy God. But they love to minimize judgment. They love to negate the mention of hell, eternal hell. And if they do mention hell, they, they, they make it so that hell is your own doing. It's your own consequences. It's, hell is hell because of the deep regret that you're experiencing in utter loneliness for the rest of eternity. Oh, no, no, no. That's not hell. Hell is hell because of a just God inflicting vengeance on his enemies, completely deserving of his wrath. False teaching attacks revelation, God, man, sin, Christ, salvation, eternity. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And as we come to a close today, Peter calls our attention not only to their inevitable presence, their insidious agenda to introduce destructive heresies that keep people in the dark, but he calls our attention thirdly to their ironic denial. Their ironic denial. I call it ironic, and I'll explain why I use that word. He says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. In other words, they're not just introducing destructive heresies, but they themselves, Peter says, deny, and the word there is present tense, it's a constant denial. It's not like Peter. If Peter knew, if there was anyone who knew anything about denying Christ, it's our apostle. It's Peter. This fisherman turned into a fisher of men. Peter knew what it was like to deny Christ, not just once. Not just twice, but three times, denying that he even knew the Lord Jesus. However, we read about Peter's repentance, Peter's transformation by the grace of Christ who sought him even after his failure. This is a different type of denial. This is a present tense, ongoing, unrepented of denying of the master. Now, denying in what way, we might ask? Well, denying by their teaching, denying by their lips, by their words. You read a little bit later on in chapter 3 how they were denying the second coming and the coming judgment. They were denying the Lord in that they refused to preach on what the Lord preached on, which was what? He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, as our confession, multiple confessions state, and he will judge the world in righteousness. They were denying him in refusing to preach on that. And they were denying him in in, in refusing to preach on the need to be prepared when he returns. You see, in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, Peter's not just giving us an abstract teaching on pursuing godliness. It's not as though Peter says, you know what? I've had a great time in prayer today, and I just want to go down and tell you all how it's a good thing to add faith to virtue and virtue to knowledge and knowledge to self-control and all these virtues. You know, it's good to do these things. No, Peter's countering the teaching of the false teachers who were saying, there's no judgment, there's no second coming of Christ, therefore live however you want. Peter says, no, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So be diligent in pursuing godliness. You see, he's not just giving us an abstract, random, out-of-the-blue discussion on holiness and godliness. He's countering the effect of these false teachers, saying there was no judgment. So they were denying Christ by refusing to preach on what Christ called his people to preach. 
But they were also, so they were not just denying him by their words, but they were denying him first and foremost and fundamentally by their works, by their works. Always remember Titus chapter one, verse 16, where the apostle Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That's how you deny Christ. By the way, the word deny here is very simple in the Greek. You ready for it? It's to say no to, to constantly refuse. And again, this is a present tense action here. They are constantly saying no to the master, no to the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word master, despotes, it, it, it referred to a household master, the head of a house. It's a rare term, but it is used in the New Testament several times to accentuate God's authority, Christ's lordship. It's not the typical word kurios used for Lord here. This is master, owner, the one who absolutely calls the shots. They are constantly saying no to him, to his words, to his authority, to his ongoing work of sanctification by the spirit. They are constantly saying no to the master. That's what this is here. They deny him by their works. Now, Peter was obviously present in Matthew 10, 32, when Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Now listen, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Luke's version is a little bit different. 12, 8, Luke 12, 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Do you see how an ongoing practice of denying the Lord results in? How it ends up? The consequence of, a const- of, of constantly saying no to the Lord Jesus Christ is to be denied before the Father and to be denied before the angels of God on the last day. That's where these people are headed. That's where the false teachers are headed. Even denying, even denying, Peter's accentuating their wickedness. Not only are they destructive in their heresies, destructive in their teaching, but they even go as far as denying, and here's the irony, the master Who bought them? Who bought them? The word is used elsewhere to refer to the redeeming work of Christ. When Paul says to the Corinthians, you were bought with a price, so glorified God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Revelation 5, 9, you by your blood ransomed people for God. The word ransomed, It's the same exact word Peter uses here when he says they deny the master who bought them, ransomed them, purchased them, redeemed them. It's the word, it's a salvation word, a salvific word, but it introduces us to a very, very serious question, several questions. How is it that these false teachers were ransomed by the Lord? And if they were ransomed by the Lord, purchased by the Lord, redeemed by the Lord, the same way that those in heaven, Revelation 5, 9, were redeemed, how? How were they redeemed in the same way? And if they were redeemed, how is it that they're going to be destroyed, caught and destroyed, condemned, damned? Because the chapter is very clear on their fate. They're going to be destroyed. So how do you couple this with all the passages in the Bible that clearly teach that Christ, those whom he saves, are saved to the uttermost? How do you reconcile this with John chapter 10, where Jesus says, my father who has given me my sheep, gives them to me, and no one will snatch them from my hand, and no one will snatch them from my father's hand. You see, the Bible is very gloriously clear that those who were saved by Christ are always kept by Christ. His blood is never 
spilled in vain. His blood was never spilled in vain. Those whom he purchased will be saved to the uttermost. Why do we say that? You see, we could end up going and taking all the, you know, the, 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 the verses that all the Calvinists love here, right? All the many passages, the many, the many, the many. Here's all my pile. The Armenian comes along and says, no, here's all the all references, A-L-L, all, 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 world, world, world. Friends, if we do that, we're never going to see past each other. We have to understand and seek to, to comprehend the nature of the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. You see, because we know from Scripture, without a doubt, that not all are elect, not all are chosen, and not all are predestined. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, everyone who ends up glorified, it's because they were predestined. No one predestined will fail to reach the end mark of glorification. It doesn't say some who were predestined, ah, he ended up calling. And a lot of those whom he called ended up justified. But only some of those ended up glorified. No. Theologians have rightfully deemed that little verse as the unbreakable golden chain of redemption. It's unbreakable. God's decree is that those whom he foreknows will be conformed without a doubt to the image of his son, who is the firstborn among many brothers to be destined to glory. So what do we do with this verse? I think that Peter is referring to he, he, what he's doing is he's, is he's taking these false teachers at their word. You claim to be bought by the master. You claim to be of the master. You're denying the master whom you claim bought you. They're denying. He's, he's throwing out some irony here. We know that scripture does not contradict itself. We know that God does not contradict himself. We know that the, that, 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 that the Father has predestined a people and they will be in glory. And the Son is on the same page, so to speak, as that. In other words, if God the Father predestined a people, not all people, but a people, to be glorified, then we have to believe, because of the unity of the Trinity, that the Son is united with the Father in his saving purpose. In other words, you don't have the Father predestining some and then the Son rebelliously coming to this earth and saying, I know that you predestined some and not all, but I'm going to try to save as many as I can, Father. I'm going to come and try to save all of them. No. The Father and the Son are one, not just in their essence, but in their purpose. Same with the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you follow the conclusion of Arminianism down to its end, it's horrid. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit all on different pages. You have the Father predestining some. You have the Son dying for all. And then you have the Spirit trying as hard as he can to go to and fro throughout the earth to try to raise some up as Christians ought, uh, to, 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 to breathe upon them with the, the, the gift of regeneration, the born-again miracle. Now, friends, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are united, not just in their essence, but in their purpose for salvation. The Son came to purchase all the Father gave him in the purpose of election, and the Spirit regenerates the exact amount of those whom the Father foreknew, the exact amount as those the Father predestined, the exact ones that the Son bled for and atoned for and propitiated the wrath of God for. Peter's using irony here. He's saying, you're denying by your words and by your works, by your lips and by your life, the master you claim bought you. Even denying the master who bought them, what's the result of that? Notice the last clause in verse one. 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Destruction has two perspectives. One hand, the author of life, right? The author of hell, the author of destruction, I should say the one who causes it is God. He, he is the one who destroys the sinner. But the second perspective is often left out. People bring destruction upon themselves by not looking to Christ, by not savoring Christ, by not coming to Christ. By the, word, by the way, this word destruction is appearing all over this chapter. Destructive heresies. Destruction is not asleep. It's all over the place. They will be destroyed, caught and destroyed. They will be destroyed, verse 12, in their destruction. I mean, he's laying it down that the only end for false teachers is to be destroyed. They bring it upon themselves and God is there to meet them in their destruction. Rightfully so. You have the Father here destroying them for denying the precious blood of Christ. And the punishment is more severe here. These people claimed to have Christ as their Lord, as their master, just like Matthew 7 talks about. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. That was these guys. We did many mighty works in your name. That was these guys. We cast out demons in your name. That was these guys. And he says, I will tell them on the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He doesn't say, I knew you once. He doesn't say, I will purchase you in about three years at the cross, but then you'll fall away. He says, I never knew you. Never knew you. I didn't, there wasn't a time when we knew each other and you fell from my omnipotent grasp. He says, I never knew you. This is the end of saying no to Christ. This is the end of saying no to the master. This is the end of saying no to the son of God. You bring swift destruction upon yourself. That's reminiscent, by the way, of Psalm 2. Very end of the psalm. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun or pay homage to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. There's the swift destruction. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These false teachers, their presence is inevitable from now until the end of the age. Their agenda is insidious. They will secretly, not openly, bring in destructive, damning heresies Heresies regarding scripture, God, man, salvation, Christ, eternity. And their denial is absolutely ironic. And yet how many of these false teachers do we see today? They name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ here on their lips, but their lifestyles deny him. They live lavishly. They live sensually. They live in sexual immorality. They live with greed. In fact, Peter's going to say later on, their hearts are trained, conditioned in greed. The only reason they're in the ministry is to get fat off the sheep. That's why in verse 3, he's going to say, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will exploit you with false words. So, these are the false teachers. We need to be on guard. We need to look out. We need to search within. 
And we need to be on guard against false teachers. One brother brought up a few nights ago that this passage, as dark as it is, ought to comfort us. Their condemnation is not, not idle. It, it drives us up the wall when we hear false teachers blaring through the TV and over the radio. And we see many co-workers and family members and loved ones and friends and family following such imposters. And it breaks our hearts. But oh, we should realize that God remembers. God knows. God sees. Just because there isn't swift destruction right now does not mean that when that destruction comes, it will be swift. He will handle it swiftly. No mercy. No grace. Because the day of grace has been spurned, rejected. We live in a day when Christians lack discernment, unfortunately. When Christians crave entertainment and they believe that theological tolerance is something like a virtue. But it's not a virtue. Whether in the Old Testament or New, God showed no mercy to false Teachers, Notice what Peter does here. He doesn't say negotiate with them, reason with them. No, they're unreasoning animals. Don't, you, can, you don't reason with an unreasonable animal. You avoid them. You call them out. You avoid, you avoid them and you warn others about them. And you hold fast to the truth. For every lie they blare through the screen, you make known the truth of God to those who are being affected by their lies. They are to be identified and named and rebuked and avoided at all costs. And what's sad today is that many who call themselves Christians have become indifferent to the truth. Indifferent to the truth. Friends, it should bother us. And if it doesn't bother us, we need to ask, do you love the truth? Do you love the truth? Because if you love the truth, you'll want to defend the truth. You'll want to proclaim the truth. You'll want to make the truth known to those who are in darkness. And sadly, because people are indifferent to the truth today, we, we lay ourselves wide open to any teacher to influence our lives as long as the teacher, one, professes Christ and uses biblical language or Christianese. Friends, it's... True. It's, it's doubtful that if you are indifferent to the truth, that you have actually been saved and delivered by the truth. You can't be indifferent to the truth if it's the truth that has set you free. And you're still enjoying and walking in the freedom with which Christ has set you free. How did he set you free? By the truth. Spurgeon said, God never saved people by error. It's always by the truth. Sanctification comes by the truth. Growth in grace comes by the truth. We need the truth. Are you one to seek out the truth? Or are you one to just hear whatever from whomever and you run with it? I am so glad that we are privileged to be part of a church where your Bibles are out in your laps, on your phone, being able to check from, that what you're hearing from the pulpit is thoroughly biblical and unapologetically scriptural. That's not happening in many places. You don't have to pull out your Bibles. You don't have to turn open to any passage in the scriptures. You're lucky if it's put on the screen for you. Test all things and hold fast what is good, church. Test all things and hold fast what is good. There is a such thing, there is such thing as truth, objective truth, and it's found in the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's found in him, and it's found in his word. We need to be set free by the truth. We need to be sanctified by the truth, and we need to be satisfied every day by the truth. Let's saturate ourselves in the truth so that we're able to understand the false teachers among us. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're here in this room, but it's a good 
Check, it's a good point of self-evaluation that just because we have a good statement of faith doesn't mean that that secures that forever there will always be sound teaching here. You're me. I need to grow in the truth so that I can stir you up to grow in the truth. Let us love the truth, saturate ourselves in the truth, delight ourselves in the truth, and warn others who have fallen into error. In many cases... Peter's describing apostates, but not all false doctrine arises from an apostate, someone who's forsaken the Lord altogether. In certain instances, we have an Apollos. Apollos, remember he was preaching in the book of Acts, and you had a couple come to him because he was off on a few areas, and they showed him the way of God more accurately more clearly. And many times, that's, that's us. And many times, that's, that's, that's many Christians, right, throughout denominations, is that they're not necessarily an apostate, and we dare not write them off as an apostate, but they might be an Apollos who needs love and genuine concern and biblical truth to come alongside and for him or her to say, I see it. I've been wrong. I've been inaccurate. Thank you for sharing that with me. But we can't do that if we ourselves don't know and aren't delighting ourselves in the truth of God every day. Let us do that.